some of the, uh, the values and the convictions that, that guide the uh, different decisions that you make each day. Why do you believe what you believe? Today, there are between 700,000 and 1 million people who uh, worship the former emperor of Ethiopia. Uh, Ras Tafari Makonen was crowned emperor on November 2nd, 1930, and Rastafarianism was born. Uh, standing at just five, five foot three inches tall, he claimed to be the 225th monarch in an unbroken line of Ethiopian kings that traced their heritage to a union, which the Bible doesn't speak of, but uh, they believe alludes to, between King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Uh, but that's, that's just the start of his claims. He changed his name to Haile Selassie I. Uh, Haile Selassie means the power of the Trinity. He also went by the titles uh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and the conquering line of Judah. Uh, today, his followers claim that his reported death in 1975 is a fraud, and that he still lives. Uh, they teach that we only have half of the real Bible, that what we call the Bible is just half, and there's another half of the Bible, which is a repository of African wisdom that is stored in the Ark of the Covenant, but that Ark is lost to us right now, and so it is just passed on through oral tradition. Uh, dreadlocks are seen to be a version of the Nazarite vow that Samson is fa famous for in the scriptures. And gatherings today typically involve marijuana, dancing, feasting, listening to, uh, listening to uh, reggae music, and reading from the King James Bible, interestingly. And while I've never been mistaken for a Rastafarian, I did grow up uh, a huge Bob Marley fan. Not particularly um, uh, did, did I, was I aware of, of the teachings of the movement or feel any particular attraction to Rastafarianism, but it does ask me the question, how do you know it's not true? How do you know that we shouldn't be worshiping Haile Selassie I? How do you know whether it's true or not? And maybe a, another, maybe perhaps more important question for many of you, how do you know that your beliefs are any more credible than Rastafarianism? Why do you believe what you believe? How can you be sure? Those are the questions that our passage, I believe, answers for us this morning. And so... If you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. We began in this letter last week and uh, began uh, trying to break down what, what we said for Paul was this, uh, it was a heated letter. Paul had, had a bee in his bonnet. He was, he was uptight about something. And uh, we began to, to look at that uh, last week. And we said that people's freedom was being uh, was being challenged. He was, he was, in, he was uh, very passionate to see that the, the gospel doesn't get added to, doesn't get subtracted from. He was passionate to see that the church would be free uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. But at the heart of this passage today is the question of whether God has spoken. Has there been a, an authoritative word from the Lord? 
if we're to know anything about life after death, about forgiveness from God, about salvation, about judgment, uh, about, about any of those things, surely we need, a, we need a word from God. If uh, anything else, and we are just guessing, there, people may make good guesses, some people make bad guesses, but unless God has spoken, it, it, surely it is anything but, it is just guesswork that we have to go on. And so this passage really helps us to ask the question, has God spoken? Has God given us a, uh, definitive answers? And if he hasn't, and we're just guessing about these things, and maybe we should be worshiping the former emperor of Ethiopia. I'm going to read from verses 11 to 24. It says this, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Now this passage, I believe, walks us through several of the tests that the scripture gives us for uh, for seeing whether God has spoken, a, a test of, of why we believe what we believe. If God was, first of all, if God has spoken, there will be a claim to his words that God will uh, make it clear that there won't be any guesswork. There will be clear claims that this is a word from God. It won't be something that people will have to, to uh, guess about afterwards and think, hey, maybe that was, that was so good. Maybe that was God. No, there'll be clear claims to, uh, to, to God and his words. And that's the claim that the Bible makes for itself. The Bible makes a claim that its words are not just human wisdom. When you see how Paul puts this in verse 11, he says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. Now, this was important because in the first century, you didn't have Oprah's book club or or those kinds of things, but you, you did have something very similar because you would have philosophers that were incredibly popular and they would attract a following. They had new ideas and, and uh, new proposals that they would put forward and they would attract a following. And Paul's saying, the good news that I'm preaching is not like that. I am not, I'm not here trying to bring you a new idea, 
I'm not bringing a new philosophy. This is not human wisdom. Then in verse 12, he says, I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Paul didn't grow up with this message. He didn't read about it on the newsstand. He didn't go and join a a course to, to learn about it. He claims that it's not just human wisdom. And that's important because a lot of the things that people stake their lives on are, at the end of the day, just their, their words, their, their ideas, their teachings that have been passed on to them by someone well-intentioned and, and, and very sincere, but with no clear claim to be a word from God. It's guesswork. And, and a, a, claim from, a claim from God is something that we should take and put in a different category. Buddha, for instance, was an agnostic. He was really hadn't made up his mind, didn't really feel that, that the idea of God was something that could be known or, or, or not known. It was, just, it was just a question mark for Buddha. But hundreds of years later, millions of people around the world worship Buddha as God. He, he didn't make those claims for himself, but afterwards people will, will put those uh, put, put those identity on him. And you'd think, if, if, if God was speaking, you'd think he'd be a little more clear. You'd think he would take some of the guesswork out of it, that there would be clear claims that it was, in fact, God speaking. Uh, many beliefs that people cling to don't lay any particular claim to be from God either. A, a friend of mine, for instance, went to his rabbi and asked him, uh, about life after death. Asked him, what, what, what can we know about, about life after death? And he was surprised when he was told that, uh, he was told by his rabbi that we are reincarnated after, after death. And he was surprised and he said, well, where, where is that taught in the Torah? Like where is in the first five books of, of the Bible, where, where is that? And he said, well, it's, it's not there. And he said, well, where is that in the, in the Tanakh? Where in the, in the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, where is, where is that taught, this idea of reincarnation? He said, it's not there. But there was a rabbi in the 13th century in Spain who taught about these things. And so many, many Jews have come to believe that today. But what you believe about life and death and what happens in eternity surely is too important to rest it in the hands of a well-intentioned and probably quite, quite uh, intelligent and persuasive 13th century rabbi or a 5th century BC agnostic who may have been a very good man, but at the end of the day, he's just a man or the Ethiopian emperor for that matter. The Bible claims to express God's revelation of good news. In verse 12, Paul says that the good news that he proclaimed was something that he received through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He received the first revelation on his way to Damascus, right? He was traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus, and he met the risen Christ. He received a revelation. But Paul continued to receive revelations. In 2 Corinthians 12.1, he speaks of visions and revelations of the Lord. Later in verse 7, he speaks of the surpassing greatness of those revelations. 
And so he repeats those things not to, not to dazzle us and, and, and to have us think that he's, he's better than other people, but to help us to see that what he is teaching is from a different place. That this is something he has received from God, not just something that he has dreamed up. He doesn't want us to take his word for it. The claim is God has spoken. God is trying to get our attention. And the implication is God deserves a hearing. We need to listen if God speaks. It's interesting to me, though, that even someone who had these direct revelations from the Lord said, this should be confirmed by Scripture. That if if God has just spoken to me and given me this revelation, then he's not going to contradict himself. You will be able to see these things in Scripture. And so in, watch what he says in, in 1 Corinthians 9.8. He says, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same thing? I've received a revelation from the Lord, and some of you may find that hard, uh, Paul is saying, not me, uh, some of you may find that hard to, hard to take, hard to stomach, but look at what I'm, I'm teaching you is consistent with what God has said all through the Old Testament. He's an apostle and he spoke with authority of one directly commissioned by Jesus Christ, but even when he would speak, he would say, confirm what I'm saying in the scriptures. God doesn't lie. God doesn't contradict himself. What I'm saying and what God has revealed to me is consistent with, with what he's revealed to his prophets from the earliest ages. So how about you? How much of what you claim to believe, how much of what you have rooted your decisions and your values, your lifestyle, how much of that is rooted in a word from the Lord? How much of that is rooted in revelation in the scriptures? Your beliefs rest on God's words or human wisdom. I believe this is a crucial passage. It's a crucial question for us to ask because the more unpopular the Bible's teachings in so many different areas become, the more they are challenged, the more you will see people standing up in pulpits that look very much like this one or, or not this one, and they will try to explain away the teachings of Scripture because they, be, they will become more and more unpopular. And at that point, you will be faced to decide, do I have a secondhand faith where I just listen to whatever people tell me the Bible says? Or do you have a firsthand faith where you go to the scriptures for yourselves and you form your convictions based on what God has clearly written for us, not what someone tells you God has revealed? So those are the questions that I think are before us. Ravi Zacharias said, these, these days it's not just the line between right and wrong has been made unclear. Today Christians are being asked by our culture to erase the lines and move the fences. And if that were not bad enough, we're being asked to join in the celebration cry by those who have thrown off the restraints religion had imposed upon them. Are your beliefs about life and morality rooted in the scriptures? Do they come from the word of God or from human wisdom? Does what you believe about heaven and hell come from revelation or human opinion? If God has been speaking, have you been listening? We can't get our beliefs secondhand. 
And this is at the heart of our identity as a church, right? On Sunday mornings, I'm not seeking to teach you some nice Christian thoughts that I think. I'm trying to explain to you the word of God. When we hand out these, the, the uh, sermon outlines every Sunday, we're, we're giving them to you to use in your, in your small groups, to use on your own, because we want to help you to apply what God says, not what humans say. We've been promoting the E100, taking people through the 100 most important passages in the scriptures. We're encouraging you in your Bible reading because we want yours to be a first-hand faith. We want your understanding of God to be rooted in his word, not a second-hand faith that you are getting from someone. And the fear is that if you get it from someone else, something gets lost in the translation. If God has spoken, there'll be a claim to his words. But just because someone claims to have spoken from God, it doesn't mean it's true, right? We need to exercise discernment. In the Old Testament, if someone claimed to be speaking for the Lord and it turned out that what they were saying didn't come true or they were actually, through those words, trying to lead people away from the Lord, they stoned people like that. We can't toss around words like revelation and prophecy and, and even the, the word of God. We can't use those words flippantly or lightly. They come in scripture with huge demands of, of accountability on the one who says them. And Paul, recognizing that, brings out this. And uh, really the second principle I think this passage brings for us is that if God has spoken, there will be evidence that God has spoken. There'll be evidence of his words. If there's an all-powerful God who is genuinely trying to get our attention, trying to speak into our lives, we'll know it. He's not going to make us guess. If it's that important, he will be clear and he will give clear evidence. There'll be evidence of his words. Now, Paul claimed that his teaching was something that he didn't make up. It was not something that he was just uh, inventing. It wasn't just his good ideas. He claimed that his gospel was a revelation from Jesus himself, but he doesn't want you to take his word for it. He wants you to be convinced, but not just because... He said so. He gives you evidence. The first evidence he gives you is a change in his behavior. And all of us, whether we accept his claims or not, we need to explain the change in his behavior. In verse 13, he says, you've heard of my former life in Judaism. See, Paul was something of a public figure. If you were a Christian in the first century, you would have heard of Paul. You would have his name would have been attached with, had have come with, with a sense of uh, fear and threat because Christians in the first century knew what he was doing to stamp out the faith. As he says later in the same verse, he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. He was like the ISIS of first century Rome. He would go uh, and seek out people who claimed Jesus as Messiah, and he would arrest them, and he was there to approve of their stoning. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, Luke describes his influence. It says, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. 
And we just read that as a little verse and think, oh, boy, that was probably tough. No, this is, this is a, a one-line description of terror to first century believers. People knew Paul. He had a reputation. Even after he came to faith in Christ, people were anxious about him. They were suspicious about him. They couldn't believe it. And so whatever you believe about the Christian faith, you have to come to terms. There was a very public figure who was uh, very violently opposed to the Christian faith and something happened. He went to the high priest. He gets letters to the synagogues in Damascus. And he heads there with the authority to arrest anyone who claims that Jesus is the Messiah. But here's the historical reality that we have to deal with, whether you accept Christianity or not. By the time when he left Jerusalem, violently opposed to Christianity, struck fear into all of his followers, by the time he got to Damascus, he was a believer in Jesus Christ. That's the reality that Paul is putting before us and says, you have to to deal with that. You have to come up with some explanation for what happened. I will give you mine, but if you reject it, you've got to come up with your own plausible explanation. He claims that the reason was that as he was on his way, he was blinded by a light from the sky, and then he heard a voice from heaven declaring himself to be Jesus. Now, that sounds pretty far-fetched. That's, that's, that doesn't happen to people all the time. We read that and we think, okay, I'm, I'm not sure whether, whether I can... I can can believe that. But the alternatives to Paul's explanation are even harder to believe. How else do you explain the fact that a guy like Paul could leave Jerusalem as someone who hated Christians, and on the way, by the time he gets there, he is a believer? Like, it's not like Christians were going to go up and try to evangelize him on the way, right? Like, he's there heading out to to arrest Christians. He, he has, been, he has uh, been present at the stoning of a Christian. We, this is someone that people are going to avoid. Nobody is there trying to say, hey, have you heard about the, you know, how you could know God personally? I've got these four law. No, nobody is going, there's nobody going to approach Paul. How, how do you explain the change that took place on that journey? Paul was a prominent enough figure that he couldn't just make these things up. He couldn't just kind of spin this amazing story to impress people. No, people knew Paul. People could confirm all of the details of what he was saying. And if they couldn't confirm him, they could also declare him a fraud. So what else could have changed his behavior? How do you explain that? If, that, if, if it wasn't as if he had previously rejected Jesus lightly either. Sometimes you have someone and they say, oh, um, yeah, Jesus is Savior. I, I'm not really into that. And, and, and then they think about it a little more. And, and, you know, this is not someone who is just lightly brushed off Jesus. In verse 14, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. Paul was someone who studied more. He memorized more. He got top marks. He was at the head of his class. He was advancing and he did so by serious, committed study. The same verse also says that he was extremely zealous for the traditions. He not only knew the Tanakh, the the Hebrew Old Testament, he, 
he was also steeped in Jewish tradition. He could quote rabbinic uh, teachings. He was someone who knew all of all that Judaism had to offer, and he was thoroughly committed to it. Do you think someone who had gone through that kind of study, that kind of commitment, fully committed and fully convinced that Jesus was a dangerous blasphemer and his followers deserved to be wiped out, do you think that someone who had come to their conclusions after that kind of study is going to change so quickly, so lightly? Do you think him, picture him walking along that road between Jerusalem and Damascus and think, maybe I've got it wrong about wiping out and stoning all of these Christians. Maybe I should just become one. Like, do you, do you think that the wheels turned that lightly, that easily? How could his thinking have changed? Does it honestly sound more reasonable than the explanation that Paul gives? And where else could he have gotten this understanding of the gospel? Paul makes much of the fact in this passage that he didn't go for a course to learn it. Verse 16 and 17, he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul set out from Jerusalem as a persecutor of the church. By the time he gets to Damascus, he's become a believer. But what he's saying is, careful the timeline here. When he gets to Damascus, he doesn't say, boy, I've just made a, a, a really quick decision and uh, I'm not really that, that sure of it and I've got to find, find some of those apostles. Maybe I'll go back to Jerusalem and, and consult. Find some of those apostles that really understand this thing and I've got to ask some more questions because I'm, I'm really not, not uh, quite made up my mind about this. He doesn't do that. Instead, when he gets to Damascus, he's just become a believer between the road there, not had anyone witnessing to him, no kind of course in Christianity. He gets there, he goes straight into the synagogues, and he declares Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Messiah that we have all been waiting for. And he begins to proclaim the good news of the gospel. He goes on to write 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. And what he's saying to us is, this is a message that I've gotten from Jesus Christ himself. And it's not like Paul's 13 letters are like way off the mark and totally different than the other 14. there, There is a unity. There is a clear message that God has revealed himself here. He has revealed himself here. He's revealed himself here. And God hasn't contradicted himself. God's message has been consistent from beginning to end and it all points to Jesus Christ. The question Paul poses by describing his timeline is if God didn't speak to him the way he says he did, where else could he have gotten this message? Where would that have come from? So if God has spoken, it matters. If it's him that he's that's really trying to get our attention, we've got to respond. If God has spoken, there will be a claim to his words. God's not going to let us just be guessing about this because there has to be a profound difference between what God says and what humans say. 
in the scriptures, that claim is undeniably there. But there's also unmistakable evidence that these are his words. If you're going to reject the gospel, you either need to deny history or you need to come up with a more plausible explanation of what changed Paul. Where did he get this message? How could he have gone from here to here? What, what, dis- what, what brought that on? The text gives a final test of a person's beliefs. If God has spoken, his words will glorify him. If the message is all about me. If the message is all about us, then it's not likely that the message is from him. His words will point to him. His words will exalt him. Now, when Paul wrote these words, philosophers captured people's attention with their ideas. There was no question that people could gain fame and recognition. They could make money. They could gain attention by their new philosophies and their new ideas. And people love to gather and hear them and to listen to their oratory. But Paul didn't claim to have any of those things. When he taught, he kept saying, I didn't come up with this. Like, this isn't me. I, I'm, I'm not that smart. I, 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 didn't, I didn't just dream any of this stuff up. When he claims in verse 12 that he received the gospel as a revelation, he's giving God the credit for his message. And this message, far from puffing up Paul and his image, consistently showed his unworthiness. He would speak of being the worst of sinners for having rejected Jesus Christ. Paul was always overwhelmed by God's grace and his own need of it. He kept on, he wasn't saying, I've got it all together, therefore you should follow me. He was saying, I have met an incredible Savior, therefore you should follow him. Paul glorified God for his message. Paul also glorified God for his calling. He never got over the fact that God could use someone like him. It it was just overwhelming to him. In verse 15, he speaks of God calling him by his grace. For God to use Paul as his servant only showed how generous and forgiving God was. In his mind, there was no other explanation. In fact, he says, he had set set me apart before I was born. Those were his words, right? He saw all of the various phases of his life and said, there is no way this is a coincidence. This isn't just like irony. This isn't just, it, this didn't just happen. God has been planning this from day one, no question. He realized it was more than just a coincidence that Jesus had saved the most anti-Christian person that existed in the first century and saved him to proclaim a message that we are not saved by the things that we do. God doesn't save us on the basis of our performance. He saves us by his free grace as we repent and put our faith in in the Savior who died for us. Paul said, there's no way that God could have taken me to proclaim that message as just a coincidence. He had this planned out right from day one. So Paul glorified God for his message. He glorified God for his calling. And it's further indication that God was at work in and through him. God has spoken. Look what happens, though, in the final verse of the chapter. 
Verse 24 says, and they glorified God because of me. They glorified God because of me. He doesn't say they glorified me because of my message. In fact, Paul didn't, Paul didn't earn a lot of comfort from the message that he proclaimed. He didn't earn riches or rewards. Instead, he was beaten and imprisoned and finally killed. And while they usually didn't heap a lot of praise on Paul, wherever he went, despite the opposition, there would be people who would glorify God. They would be caught up with a wonder at the grace. They would see Paul and they would think, if God could save him, if God could have mercy on him, if God could use him, he could use any of us. He could save any of us. And people marveled at God's grace. As Paul preached, people started to pray. People started to worship God. They gave sacrificially to meet the needs of the poor. The early church became famous for its compassion, for its acts of goodness. The message glorified God and it changed people. And it continues to do so today. And what Paul's saying is, that's further evidence that this message didn't come from me. This is God doing this. God has spoken. Human religion glorifies its leaders. Human religion glorifies its rules. Human religion glorifies its traditions, glorifies its followers by saying, you can do it. This is in you. Just try harder. That's what human religion does every time. But the good news of Jesus glorifies God. You sure that you have really listened to what God has said? If God has spoken, and if he has made it so unmistakably clear that this is God speaking, are you sure that you have heard his voice? The gospel says that we have blown it. We've broken every standard that God has set for us. We've missed the mark, and we've turned our backs on him when he's offered us paradise. We haven't just made some mistakes or shown poor moral discernment. We have broken God's laws, and we have brought upon ourselves the judgment of God. That's, that's the message of the Bible. That's where it starts. But God in his mercy sent his only son to take the judgment that we deserved and he took it in our place on the cross. He died in our place to bring us life. Because of his gift, we can be forgiven. We can be set free. We can be accepted before a holy God. We can enjoy his salvation. We can enjoy his forgiveness. By faith, he receives us as his children and he welcomes us in love. He fills us with his spirit so that we can live a new life. That's the good news of the gospel. And the scriptures proclaim people didn't come up with this themselves. God has spoken. And if it's God's word, it needs to be treated in a whole different category. That's the good news of the gospel. The Bible proclaims that that's God's good news, claims that it's God's message for us, and he gave us evidence to convince us, to persuade us. So if this is God's message, let's make sure that we've laid, laid hold of it by faith. Let's make sure that we have rested in it. We turn 
from ourself, turn from sin, and we put our trust in him. And we don't treat any other human opinion the way we treat the voice of God, the word of God that he's given us. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you didn't leave us to ourselves down here to try and just figure it out. I thank you that you've spoken. I thank you that you've spoken so clearly and that you've given us evidence because many of us would be suspicious and the others would naively believe your words and believe the lies that people would lay aside them just as easily. Help us to listen to you, Father. Help us to cling to your words and treat your word as precious. I pray that you'd show us ways that we are following human wisdom. Show us where our thinking is out of step with your will. And most of all, help us to hear and to respond to the good news of the gospel. I pray for any here this morning who haven't turned to you through faith in Jesus Christ. Take the words that you've spoken and apply them to their hearts. For we ask you in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.